Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. What's supposed to be a very important day today uh, in the Palace of Westminster, it was meant to be another meaningful vote on whether the Brexit deal that Theresa May was putting together was heading for the buffers or whether it was going to get more backing than ever. But instead, it has morphed into yet another day of hot air, uh, of cold stares and of general disinformation. We'll get the lowdown from our political editor, Ross Kempsell, uh, who is down there on College Green for us. Uh, but there's a good reason why we are not down there in the Talk Radio tent of today is because there's not really very much to report on. Instead, we'll be debating the really big stories of the day, like why on earth anyone would think it's a good idea to let a schoolgirl who left this country to join ISIS four years ago, why she should be allowed back into the country so that her unborn child can get all the benefits of the civilised society she plotted to destroy. No thank you, uh, Shemima Begum. No thank you very much. Of course, there are the usual uh, lily-livered, wet liberals out there who are saying, oh, well, you know, it wasn't really her fault that she went to join a terrorist organisation. You know, she was talked into it. She was even maybe groomed into it. The fact that she's talking about seeing people's heads cut off in dustbins and it didn't faze her is reason enough not to want her back. She married some Dutch bloke, let her go to Holland and face the consequences there. We do not want these kind of people back on our shores. Thank you very much indeed. 0344 499 It's Valentine's Day, of course, so we'll be celebrating all the good things about love, companionship and relationships. And I'll be asking for your help. Our producers want to know what the best love songs are that were ever written so we can play them out. I'd rather play some of the worst ones, so please do tweet us at Talk Radio uh, with your suggestions as to what the worst love songs are, and we'll play those instead of the good ones. 0344 499 1000, and I'll be asking Labour's Shadow Chancellor and Communist in Chief why he thinks Winston Churchill deserves to be remembered as a villain. John McDonnell, what an absolute disgrace to Britain. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
the now the Times, uh, one of the newspapers in the stable uh, of the same owners as we are here at Talk Radio, has done a brilliant job. Uh, Anthony Lloyd has gone out and got an interview with the former schoolgirl who fled uh, Bethnal Green and a school in Bethnal Green when she was only about uh, 15 years of age. She joined ISIS in a Syrian refugee camp. She married some guy. She's had two children already, uh, both of whom have died, right, which she doesn't seem to be too bothered about, uh, both of whom have died because of various things that happened to them while they were in this camp. She's now decided that having uh, got pregnant for the third time, she wants to come back to Britain and she thinks that Britain somehow owes her a living, somehow owes her uh, the care uh, and, the, and the upkeep of the rest of her life. Well, I don't think we do. I think if you leave this country to join a terrorist organisation which is bent on destroying Western civilization, I'm afraid all bets are off. You can stay where you are. I couldn't really care less if she perishes in the desert. I don't really care what happens to her as long as she doesn't turn up right back here where she does not belong. It's as simple as that. 0344 499 I know lots of you will agree with me. Some of you may think I'm being a bit harsh. Some of you may go, well, hang on a second. You know, this is a 19-year-old girl. Surely she deserves our sympathy. Surely she deserves our compassion. Well, no, I don't think she does. She doesn't deserve sympathy or compassion. She went and willfully joined an organisation of people who would like to see the demise of Western society in principle. She joined an organisation which would like to blow up innocent men, women and children. She joined an organisation which was hell-bent on debasing women, on cutting off people's heads, on setting people on fire in cages. These are savages, ladies and gentlemen. Shemima Begum went and joined them. I don't care. I don't give a stuff whether she was in some way groomed. That's not the point. She does not belong in a civilised society and she does not deserve to be part of ours. I don't think anybody in their right mind would disagree with that. 0344 499 Let's talk to Dr Paul Stott uh, from the Henry Jackson Society. Dr Paul, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, there will be people out there, and I'm already seeing some of them on Twitter, saying, oh, well, you know, it's not her fault. She was led into this. She was kind of uh, um, hoodwinked into joining an organisation she didn't know much about. She was only a schoolgirl. I don't think any of that matters, do you? No, not really. Um, I think individuals have agency and uh, they take their own decisions. Yeah. The, the age of criminal responsibility in Britain's 10. These girls were all 15 when they went out. Uh, she's 19 now and clearly still holds very similar uh, positions. And, you know, this view of, oh, they've been groomed or they were vulnerable, this is the way patronising middle-class white people talk very often about yeah. ethnic minorities, I'm afraid. Mm. So it, it really needs to be, to be knocked on the head. These were people old enough to make a decision. They made bad decisions. And I'm afraid now, um, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost for them. Well, it's all very well as well to talk about how they were groomed. You know, I mean, she came from a very ethnically mixed area of London called Bethnal Green, where there were probably plenty uh, of young Bangladeshi kids growing up. She and maybe one or two others decided that they would take it upon themselves to go on some kind of ludicrous fairy tale like adventure uh, into the heart of darkness. But nobody else did. You know, there's more, there's more than dozens and dozens and dozens of her fellow um, immigrants and children of immigrants who didn't bother to do that because they didn't want to. No, they made better decisions yeah. or simply didn't share her views. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering as well, of the, the, the four girls who went out from Bethnal Green, one earlier and, and three in a group, um, one of Shamima Begum's friends, Amira Abassi, we know her father had been pictured with Alma Haroon, Anjum Chowdhury's group, you know, burning the American flag and shouting Allah Akbar on, a, on, a, on demonstrations. So, you know, I think there'd been at least some connection to radical circles mm. beforehand. 
it's also worth stressing that in order to get out there, they uh, stole family jewellery. So they'd you know, taken quite a calculated decision. And all of this was occurring in the period where you know, the full truth about Islamic State was known. We'd seen, for example, the kidnapping of... Um, uh, various Britons out there, including uh, uh, Alan uh, Henning, you might remember. Mm. So, you know, these people who chose to renounce Britain and join a, a caliphate, and they ended up on the losing side. Yes. They bought, they bought one-way tickets, and uh, really that needs to be the line that the, uh, the government holds on to. There may be a case for taking some individuals back who've provided actionable intelligence, those who are generally... Uh, genuinely remorseful who've uh, reformed potentially... Yeah, but how do you measure that, cases. though, uh, Paul? Because, well, that, you know, it's all very well... That's, what, that's the yeah. problem, is it? It's all very well to say, oh, this person's genuinely remorseful. You know, these are the same people uh, who wanted to give uh, the black cab rapist freedom because they thought he'd genuinely, uh, uh, you know, become convinced that his crimes were wrong, which indeed was completely wrong and as well. They, they, he, you know, he had not, in fact, been remorseful whatsoever. So they can pretend to be and they can hoodwink the authorities, but I don't think we should even give them that opportunity. No, I think there's a strong argument there, uh, Mike, for exactly that. And we also have to think very carefully about the message it sends out if we do uh, start to, to retreat on this type of issue. You know, we, we give a message basically that their system's stronger than ours, that they don't bend, that we do, they don't change, we do. You know, if we always retreat in front of our opponents, it's not a good look. No, it really isn't. And it sends out completely the wrong message because, I mean, you'll know this better than me. I mean, how many other uh, people like this are there uh, in ISIS land? And I call it ISIS land deliberately because I want to make fun of it. I want to mock it. I don't want to give it the name that they give it. I want to give it a bad name. Well, the situation's very confused as to just how many people are still alive, how many are being held by different groups, militias that we perhaps don't know about. I mean, for example, of the of the Bethnal Green Three, Amira Abbasi was reported killed in 2018. Speculation she's still alive. Khadiza Sultana reported killed in 2016. So, you know, we, we genuinely uh, don't know, but certainly figures in the, you know, four or five hundred potentially for, for Britons who are still there in the field. It is a shocking state of affairs, really, isn't it? I mean, what on earth uh, could lead us to stop this from happening again? How will we stop it from happening again? Because, you know, people will argue that the reason this has happened is because we have allowed these hate preachers to, to preach hate. We have allowed people like Anjum Chowdhury to walk the streets of this country. We have not locked him up. We have not stopped him uh, from having the rights that he, as a British citizen, is allowed to have. Uh, and this is what he's created. I think certainly the Al Maharoon group and Anjum Chowdhury were, were very influential for a very long time. And it's, it, there's a strange sort of dichotomy, really, whereas if you look at how there's been a very unpleasant far-right group, National Action, emerge in recent years that's been prescribed, what's happened there is the group has basically been taken out by the police, security services, arrests and uh, criminal charges. That never really happened, unfortunately, with Anjum Chowdhury, yeah. that he and his group were, were, allowed, were, were allowed to have quite a high profile for a long time. But I think it's also important to stress that, you know, with, for example, these uh, three young women in Bethnal Green, there seems to be this search for a sort of Islamic utopia yeah. and a belief in utopia. Right. And some of the rhetoric from um, 
Islamic State, whatever term you want to give them, um, you know, did seem to sell quite readily, unfortunately, in, in communities where, um, you know, this is seen as the big thing. And also, these are people who fundamentally disagree with our very existence and all of the things that we hold dear and all of the things that we have worked for centuries to create and all of the kind of freedoms and all of the equalities and all of the kind of um, non-gender-specific situations that we have in this country, what I call civilization. They want to kill it. So why should we allow this woman to come back here? Well, as you've just, uh, as, as you've seen in the papers, Mike, they don't necessarily disagree with the National Health Service. Oh, they quite like the free health care, I'm sure. And I'm sure that she would love the fact that she can come back here and have her baby treated. I mean, this is a woman uh, who you might say is partially deranged. Uh, but I, I think we are at the beginning, really, now, Mike, of a, of a whole series of disputes and issues like this. Mm. Because you, you've basically got three groups of people who've gone out to, to Syria and, and, and parts of Iraq. You've obviously got those who've gone out to fight. You've got the sort of fans and, and jihadi brides. Mm. You've got the extended families of some of the fighters. And then you've got gone those who've gone out who claim they've gone out certainly for, for charity work. Yeah. And some of those are now looking. There's been a, a lobbying organisation formed, um, the Unity Project, to try and bring some of these people back. Mm. So I'm afraid this is going to get a really this is going to be a really big issue over the next yeah. few weeks. And so months. we're going to need to find some kind of um, set response, are we not? So that we don't have every single time one of these people appears uh, a whole long drawn out process for one individual. Surely we should set a policy here. The government is, is duty bound to do that, isn't it? Yes, I think we're we're looking for a lead. There's been been various um, you know bits of talk at the United Nations level and you know coordinated responses, but really this is a national government issue, and I, I think it's one of those issues where um, the public's views need to start leading um, politicians. That um, you know these people have taken one-way tickets. They have taken one-way tickets, but what actually is their status? Are they stateless? I mean, is she still a British citizen technically? Uh, has her passport been rescinded? What's going on? Um, it's, it's very difficult to find out sometimes because the Home Office doesn't, for obvious reasons, like to discuss individual cases. A lot of those who've been stripped of their citizenship are people who are dual nationals. So, for example, people who've got British and Pakistani citizenship. Um, in international law, you can't make somebody stateless. So if, for example, she was a British citizen, I don't think we can necessarily remove that uh, from her. So, but equally, the, the advice of the, the British government for a long time has been, don't go to Syria. We cannot provide any support for mm. individuals there. Right. But they go nonetheless. And surely there must be a way that we can, in some way, shape or form, coagulate with other countries in Europe and other countries around the world and say that these people are stateless and leave them where they're... I mean, what would happen if we just left her where she was? Well, uh, that's the, that's the uh, $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, I think it's also worth stressing, though, that potentially very serious criminal offences have been committed here. Mm. Somewhat bizarrely, after these three uh, young women left Bethnal Green, the, the police were criticised for failing to stop them. And the police actually declared that they wouldn't, for example, be um, charged over the accusations of, uh, of stolen jewellery. Mm. I, I think there are clearly other uh, offences under counter-terrorism legislation, much more serious, that have been uh, committed here. But... Um, 
you know, the, the state needs to, and, and public opinion needs to be robust enough to actually uh, address these accusations. I've got a tweet here uh, that says this. Based on her comments, there is no suggestion she was groomed. She has shown admiration for ISIS and the lifestyle and that she regrets abandoning them. Wet liberals who, belt, uh, who, who, who say that she is anything other than a terrorist advocate are deluded. And I think a lot of people would agree with that statement. Indeed. And, um, you know, she said herself that she was uh, a bit naive at 15. Well, she seems to actually hold pretty similar views from the interviews we've, uh, we've heard at, at 19. So I, I don't really think a lot's, a lot's changed here other than that the uh, utopia that she was looking for has, has been defeated on the battlefield. It's collapsed. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Well, listen, Dr. Paul, we shall keep an eye on it. Uh, we shall keep counsel with you as well. Uh, Dr. Paul Stott uh, from the Henry Jackson Society. I mean, he's basically saying the $64,000 question is, what do you do? Is she stateless? Well, apparently not. Is she still British? Apparently so. Should we have some kind of responsibility to bring her back here? Supposedly, we might have. But I don't think there is any way whatsoever that anyone in this country wants this woman back. I would just leave her to rot, quite frankly. I don't care what happens to her. This is Talk Radio. We're going to have a bit of a fight going on throughout the show today because the producers want to play the greatest love songs of all time. I want to play the worst love songs of all time. And I'm happy to say that we're kicking off with one of the worst ever. Uh, That's awful. Absolutely horrendous. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Uh, Just to make it uh, even more of a bizarre experience for you, I'm going to tell you something you weren't expecting to hear. And that is that Keith Richard uh, has given up drinking hard liquor and also apparently is trying to give up cigarettes as well. Uh, every time a pop star dies or a rock uh, star dies, everybody goes, well, Keith's still there. Uh, he's still is there. He's 75 years of age and he's apparently uh, he's going to give it all up. Unbelievable. Uh, Peter says this on Twitter. This British ISIS girl uh, being allowed to return. The law is where the problem is. We need much tougher laws about anyone supporting terrorist groups. I hope the baby is taken away from her due to a lack of understanding of morals and responsibility. And Charles says this individual attests to the view that the Manchester bomber et al. who have killed children and adults were heroes. The people saying we should let her back in should be the ones to tell the families of those killed by ISIS acolytes in the UK. It's a disgusting state of affairs if this woman is allowed anywhere near our shores. That's what I'm saying. Let's talk to you though. 0344 499 1000. Neil is in Macclesfield. Hello Neil. Hi Mike, you alright? Yeah, very well sir. What do you reckon? Um, None of this makes any sense to me. Mm. Um, She is over there living with her uh, ISIS uh, husband or jihadi fighter. Right. Um, I just don't get it. I mean, she's now saying to her uh, jihadi husband, "Oh, I'm going to go back to the UK. Is that all right?" Yeah. So she's he, basically she's described her. Be- she's described her life there as relatively normal, right? Despite the fact that she saw a severed head in a bin. <laughs> I mean, you know, hello. She's probably got a waitrose just down the road, and you know, a gym and everything. Yeah. But right. anyway, um, Jim the, the thing is, it, it yeah. It just wouldn't happen in real life. I mean, this this jihadi husband yeah. would bury her up to her neck in sand, and the rest of the community yeah. would stone her. Yes, you know that is that is the reality of what would happen. So it makes me wonder: is this part of a wider terrorist plot mm. to to infiltrate our society? And and plant a bomb in in London tube. Well, you know what? You you go back to the guy who blew up Manchester Arena. He was yeah. the son of a very dangerous man from Libya, who we invited yeah. into this country because we thought we were doing him a favour. You know what we failed to do is to track the fact that his son was also going over to Libya to fight on behalf of jihadis. You know, there's too much of this going on. Well, who knows how many people here would like to blow us all up? You know, it's disgusting. I know, and uh, I blame the. Um 
you know, these government agencies. Yeah. Nobody in these government agencies seems to ever sit there and think, oh, I wonder if she's actually telling fibs. Right. And well, nobody ever ever questions what these people say. No, and, I mean and, she and wants. No, she's she said in this interview in the Times, which is a brilliant uh, a piece of journalism and journalistic work by the Times. She's saying, "Oh, I just want to come back to Britain and lead a quiet life." Well, I'm sorry, darling, you've already, I'm afraid, <laughs> given that up. You couldn't make it up, honestly. You could not make it up. You know, she's went over there to fight for a, a state which is at war with with the United Kingdom. If you take that action, you can only be judged on your action. And I'm sorry, but, you know, that's where you're going to have to stay and just... No, exactly. And also, you know, it's a bit coincidental, is it not, that she's now asking to return to this country after ISIS have by and large been defeated and this is their final sort of death throes in the part of Syria uh, where they're being chased out of. Well, I mean, the ISIS were always a vile organisation, and anybody who, who who aligned themselves with ISIS, you know, I mean, it's just it's disgusting, really. Mm. It really is. But because we're kind of faced with this, having never been faced with it before, we are, of course, like a rabbit in the headlights in terms of the government. We don't know what to do. Well, go with your gut instinct yeah. and just say, "Sorry, love." We're not letting you back yeah. in? No, I mean, I'm not going to go down the route of, of, of what was a- advocated by one of our defence ministers in which he said we should be going over to uh, where these people are and just assassinating them. I'm not advocating that at all. But I certainly think we should just leave her where she is. Uh, Samantha says, your guest earlier said we're at the beginning of this sort of situation. Ray attempts to return. So start as we mean to go on. No ifs, no buts, just a flat, emphatic no. I think that's very important. I think we absolutely have to set our stall out here and say to anyone who is thinking of coming back from the war in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iraq, who was fighting on behalf of Syria, uh, on behalf of ISIS. Anyone who was involved in that is not welcome back in this country, and they are no longer British citizens. I think we can make that as a rule and treat it as a piece of law and a piece of legislation. And if they need to vote it through in the House of Commons, instead of messing about, talking about Brexit every five minutes, let's do it. Let's do it now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we know an awful lot of you also want to have your say as well uh, on this dreadful story, a great story in the Times today, exclusive by Anthony Lloyd in northern Syria, uh, with a, a woman who decided to go and join ISIS, get married, have children, uh, and become part of that ghastly ISIS cult. Her name is Shemima Begum. Uh, she left Bethnal Green and a school in Bethnal Green when she was 15 years of age with three other girls. Now she wants to come back. She's pregnant with her third child, the other two died of malnutrition, would you believe? Uh, she now wants to come back and have her third child here in Britain because she just wants to lead a quiet life. Well, I'm sorry, uh, Shemima, uh, we don't really want to see you. Thanks very much indeed, so don't bother coming back. That would be my point. 0344 Let's talk to Henry Newman, uh, who is from uh, Open Europe, uh, a man who is for Brexit. Uh, he's not somebody who some of the Remainers would describe as too stupid to know what he voted for. He's not somebody uh, who Remainers would uh, sometimes refer to as un uneducated, not from a university background. He's a man who's very smart. He's a man who wants to leave Europe, and he's a man I have a great deal of time for. Henry, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I think some of them do still call me stupid, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take the compliment. Yeah, well, you. I mean, you know, you can let that stuff wash over you. It is becoming very kind of snobbish now, isn't it, to be a Remainer? They're all kind of all over Twitter telling people that, you know, the vast majority of university-educated people voted to remain in the European Union, basically saying if you voted to leave, uh, you are nothing short of thick. Well, exactly. And I think I know quite a lot of people, uh, quite a lot of very smart people who didn't go to university and quite a lot of dumb people who did. Well, I'm entirely in agreement with that. I mean, just because you've got a degree does not make you smart. No, completely agree. But yes. I think and this, this question of Brexit is one that divides the whole country. We know that. Yeah. And it's also, having said that, it divides people. But even in London, uh, our capital was supposedly a sort of huge Remain heartland. We know that more people voted to leave the EU than voted for Sadiq Khan as their first preference for mayor. So right. you know, I think the divisions are, are there, but sometimes they're less than Remainers imagine. I actually think you have a bit of a sort of shy Brexiteer effect in some, in some industries. Yes. and in some, I, know, I know top CEOs of FTSE 100 companies who, are, who weren't out as leavers because they were too embarrassed to tell their colleagues. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And the sort of the dinner party set as well. I mean, I'm finding people to talk to now who say, oh, we basically don't really ever talk about uh, what we did over the referendum because it's too divisive and we, we've banned it as a conversation topic. But what about the kind of desperation that I'm seeing now as well from Remainers who are kind of clutching at straws for anything uh, to try and make sure that this does not happen um, because they're becoming ever more desperate as it appears that we are edging ever closer to some kind of a deal. Well, hopefully we're edging ever closer to a deal. I still think that, um, I mean, I can understand the desperation on the Remainer side, but I think that one of the worries is that Brexiteers can be their own worst enemies in some cases. And we're still seeing different factions within the sort of Leave movement pursuing all kinds of different ideal options. If someone to go WTO, irrespective of the fact that probably you wouldn't be able to uh, get that through Parliament because Parliament would probably step in and try and stop that. Uh, and I think there's the danger that we all run off and pursue our perfect Brexit, and then in so doing, we actually manage to uh, you know, lose the project overall or mm. end up with an, a worse deal than the one that's currently on the table. Mm. Uh, but I think, yes, on the Remain side, 
I, what's interesting is that the second referendum, for now, seems to be in abeyance, seems to be slipping away. And we got those very angry comments last week, I think it was, from the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, who described Brexiteers or the people who promoted Brexit as having a special place in yeah. hell. And that got a lot of attention. But actually what he said... I think just before that was almost more interesting because he said that essentially the idea of Remain, the, uh, the leadership for a second referendum, was politically dead in yeah. the UK. And that was a huge deal because I think that was one of the first stages of, uh, if you go through the stages of anger, if you have a breakup or if you have a uh, divorce or even a bereavement, anger is one of those phases. And I think that was the first time we sort of saw anger from the, mm. from the EU side about, uh, about what's happening. Yes, I think that's a very significant point that you've made. And I think it was a very significant day. Guy Verhoff Verhofstadt has, has also been particularly bad uh, at kind of um, standing up for the EU and recruiting more people, really, to, who would now want to leave because of his arrogance. Oh, I think we, we, uh, I don't think there's a monopoly on uh, being rude to your neighbours on the UK side. <laughs> I mean, we often hear about Brexiteers uh, saying disparaging things about European countries, and that's, they, they rightly get criticised for it. But yeah. we. But we also we see the reverse the other way. Um, we saw the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, uh, speaking, I think, yesterday evening and saying that Britain was a diminished country and all this sort of thing. I just think everybody needs to take a deep breath um, and, and try and uh, hold themselves together. And as you were saying at the top of, the, uh, the top of this item, we've got this vote coming in Parliament uh, tonight. It might not make much difference. But it might, in that what we're seeing is, again, a split between the government and some of the Eurosceptics. And if the Prime Minister can't hold her party together, that gives Brussels the excuse that they're looking for to say, look, mm. we, there's nothing that will ever satisfy some of these Eurosceptics. We don't need to bother moving on the backstop because there's just no point. Yes, and it does seem as though with every week that goes by and every week that we get closer to March the 29th, it's a different group of people who are kind of the disruptors. You know, the last time around, it was Dominic Grieve uh, and Yvette Cooper and all of those different amendments that were going through the House. Now it would appear to be, uh, you know, the uh, the the right wingers in the, in the Tory party, the Brexiteers, the hard Brexiteers like like Rhys Mogg and Boris Johnson and others who are kind of looking at the, uh, the, the their options and saying, well, no, it's not hard enough for us. Exactly, and I think we, you know we've heard lots of different uh, messages from Boris Johnson and other Eurosceptics about what they would and wouldn't accept in terms of a tweak on the backstop or changes to the deal. Mm. Do they want it? Does it have to be in the text itself? Does it need to be a time limit? Can it be an exit clause? And I think that the, the confusion from the Eurosceptic side is fueling this argument on the Brussels side. Look, they don't know what they want, um, and I think there's also very, very high expectations about what is actually possible at this point. We're, you know, we're, we're in the final stages of the negotiation. We're running out of time. We might, if we're lucky, get a tweak on the backstop. But I don't think it's going to be very much more than that. No, right. And what about the, uh, the second referendum? Because you were saying it's pretty much dead in the water, and even, uh, even Donald Tusk has said as much. But there are still people pushing for it. I mean, the front page of The Guardian today, Labour MPs warning Corbyn, if you don't back a second, re- second referendum, we'll quit as many as 10 possible resignations from Labour's front bench, which I presume will include people like Keir Starmer. Uh, I don't know if it would include Keir necessarily, but I think you're, you're right that this is a split that goes right through the Labour Party. I mean, there was a fantastic quote by Stuart Wood, who was a, uh, a Labour peer but, and formerly a, um, a government advisor to, um, to the Labour leadership. And he essentially said that the Tory party is like a, a Ming vase, which has been cracked down the middle mm. over these splits from Europe, but is somehow still standing together just. Right. Whereas the Labour Party is a perfectly formed vase that's about to be hurled against the wall and disintegrate. <laughs> um, and I thought it was a, it's a brilliant visual metaphor because actually these splits
Brits and the Labour Party aren't just over over Brexit, although that's very important. Yeah. They're also over this fundamental question of Labour's attitude to anti-Semitism mm. and uh, w- what some see as the the, the, the hatred of um, of Jewish MPs that is led by people in pretty senior places within the Labour Party. Luciana Berger, in particular, this MP f- from Liverpool, who's been uh, taken a huge amount of flack from the own her own Labour Party. And I heard Len McCluskey, the senior uh, union leader, say just last night that essentially these, these claims about anti-Semitism were exaggerated. Well, that's not how many Labour MPs see it. And it, there's this sort of joint split over the kind of the Labour's attitude to anti-Semitism and also their attitude towards Brexit. And that means that the, the chances of a breakaway are, are growing ever stronger. Mm. But it still hasn't happened. And I think even if it does happen, I'm not sure it really moves the dial on Brexit. First of all, we're talking about a relatively few number of MPs. And secondly, they're already opposing Brexit and they're already backing a second referendum in Parliament. I don't think it's really that possible to see how you get a majority for a second referendum in Parliament. I just think even if J- Jeremy Corbyn, who's done his absolutely best to avoid a second referendum, yeah. even if you flip position, you're still well short of a majority in the Commons because you've got Tory Remainers, Nick Bowles, Nick Herbert, Nicky Morgan. These are sort of senior backbenchers who, um, who are on the Remain side. And they're all saying different versions of second referendum over my dead body. And until that changes, we're not going to have a second referendum. No, I don't think we are. But as far as the amendments go today and as far as the business of, of the voting tonight, you know, we're now, we're now led to believe it's not obviously a meaningful vote. It's not going to be something binding. But it is going to be indicative, I suppose, of the way forward and where we are uh, in a couple of weeks' time as we get to the end of February. What do you see happening uh, later on, Henry? So I think the, the, the big question today is can the government hold its majority together? Yeah. And they're having a row over whether no deal is on or off the table, which is, uh, I think part of that, again, is the government just mishandling its its relationship with its own backbenchers. And then uh, it's also the Eurosceptics trying to take offence. So there's a kind of, there's a bit of blame perhaps on both sides. But the key will come later in the month, at the end of February. And then there will be a move by a Labour backbencher, Yvette Cooper, formerly a Cabinet Minister under Gordon Brown, and she wants to give Parliament, not the government, the power to stop uh, the exit date at the end of March by delaying Brexit. Now, uh, some people are very, very worried by this because what they see is if Parliament is able to do that, it could actually mean that Parliament then is able to stop Brexit overall by changing the law that means that we will leave uh, on that particular date, but also we will leave at all. Um, And I think if if the Prime Minister does go to Brussels and beg for an extension to Article 50, every single EU country has to agree. And they may say, look, you can't just extend it for a few weeks. We're not interested in having this continual cliff-edge pressure of the UK about to sort of uh, fall out without a deal. We're going to make you extend for a very long time, have European elections, uh, you know, be around the table, be an EU member for another, say, 21 months. And that, I think, would be extremely difficult. So I think the parliamentarians are looking to this option of extending Brexit uh, as a sort of way out. And I don't think it really is a way out. I think it's, it's distracting them from the decision they have to make about whether they want to back this deal or not. And what did you make of the Ollie Robbins story a couple of days ago where he was supposedly overheard in a bar? I'm always one of those who doesn't believe you're overheard saying anything in a bar unless you want to be overheard saying something in a bar. Uh, I, 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 I think he was just overheard. Um, I think it was. I, I think if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to leak 
something, uh, he would ring up one of your uh, excellent colleagues on talk radio <laughs> and, uh, and make sure that they knew about it and could put it all over, uh, over all over Twitter. Mm. Uh, but given that the, the call didn't go to Ross, I think that this was somebody genuinely overheard. Um, and I think what he was saying, it was the classic political gaffe because it had it was basically true. What he was saying was that Parliament is going to... I don't think he was saying that he wants Parliament to step in, but I think he was saying that Parliament will step in to stop No Deal. And that means the choice, ultimately, that MPs are going to have to face up to is either taking a version of May's deal, and I think, and I think you would agree, that we should try and improve that as much as possible, or the other choice, though, is if it's not a version of May's deal, it's going to be a very long extension to Article 50, mm. and Brexit delayed and deferred, and then God knows what happens. Yeah, well, that's the problem, isn't it? We're still kind of... I mean, this is why I keep saying to myself, I mean, I don't know whether I'm partially trying to just convince myself, but I do feel as though we're getting closer to a deal. I believe there will be a deal, um, but I can't give you any real evidence to why I think that. Well, I, I, agree, I sort of agree. I sort of feel it in my bones. Yeah. I think that... I also think that people who uh, need to take a deep breath and uh, yeah, look at the actual deal that's on offer. There mm. are problems with it. I think the the indefinite backstop is a concern. But I also think that we, as Eurosceptics, uh, or certainly me as a Eurosceptic, when I used to hear from other Eurosceptics five, ten years ago, what they used to say is, we'd like to go back to a relationship that was just a trading relationship yeah. with the EU. That's literally what this deal does. The backstop is a trading relationship with the EU outside of the political union. Yes, we're in a customs union, but that's a trading block. And that's what we used to say we wanted from the EU. Right. We wanted to have tariff-free trade. We wouldn't be paying any money at all. So look, we might get stuck there for a while. I would rather have an exit mechanism of some sort. But even if we did get stuck there, we would be paying precisely zero to mm. the EU. We'd be able to control our own migration. We'd be able to control the laws governing the economy on tax uh, and on the way that we regulate the labour market and the environment. We'd be able to, reg- to diverge on services. And we'd also be able to say no to new rules coming from Brussels on goods. So actually, it gives us a lot of power. Mm. That, and I don't think that's really been appreciated by some of its critics. I don't think it has, because many of its critics say it's also going to cost us more money than if we actually just walked away. And that's what they, I think uh, the ER and others find it so unpalatable. Look, I, mean, I think that there's obviously this controversy around the so-called Brexit divorce yeah. bill, uh, roughly £39 billion. Mm. But we should remember that it was Jean-Claude Juncker who told the Financial Times, I think it was a couple of years ago, that this bill was going to be over €65 billion. Euros. So actually, we did knock that down quite a bit. And it's part of that, at least half, is for the standstill transition where we pretend to be a member having left that's basically for most of two years and that's something that we wanted so you know that half of that is just to allow us to have the extra time to prepare for leaving those two, that roughly two years standstill transition that business wanted and that Eurosceptics accepted and then the other half is to settle debts over a long period of time now look you could you could argue we paid too much we, we folded too soon but really we're talking about 20 billion pounds it's quite a lot of money but compared to what we'd spend as a member if we were staying in for another decade it's obviously much much less yeah, absolutely right henry thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us henry newman there uh, who is of course director of open europe former special advisor to michael gove dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
Now, see, I like this one. This is a good one, right? Oh, we're getting some agreements. The first one we've all agreed is a good love song. Uh, it is Valentine's Day, of course. If you haven't forgotten, uh, you better get on it quickly. Uh, don't bother going to Interflora, though, because uh, Interflora apparently don't deliver flowers on the same day on Valentine's Day because it's too busy. <laughs> Brilliant, isn't it? Who knew it was going to be busy on Valentine's Day selling flowers? You really do wonder who's running some of these companies, don't you? Uh, Vernon is in Worcester. Hello, Vernon. Mike, good morning. Good morning, sir. Fabulous show. Thank you. Let's congratulate you on a fabulous show. Enjoyed the last 48 hours. I'll be classed as a newbie. Oh, well done. Um, well, very, well, very, you're very welcome, Vernon, to, to join the Independent Republic. A number of issues to discuss with you, Mike. Yeah. Uh, number, number one would be this young girl that's over um, in Syria. Yes. She's made a bed. She's lying it. Mm-hmm. Don't want her to return. Right. Sorry, I'm a father of six. Value my children immensely, and I don't want those type of people that have decided to leave a civilized society yeah. to go somewhere where it isn't civilized, where they chop heads off. And I don't want to listen to the PC brigade. I have no interest in them. You know, this is a very nice country with good people in. It only goes wrong when we allow the wrong type of people yeah. in. Um, and, and, I, and I think, and I'm sure you, you'd, I, I think you'd agree with this, Vernon. You know, she's abrogated her uh, right to live here by leaving and going to such a dreadful yeah. place, you know? Yeah, I don't want to hear any of this grooming or online or whatever. She was no. 15 years of age. I don't know how she got the money to travel to Syria. That, that would be one area that I would be questioning. Yes. Uh, I'd also be looking very closely at the parents because if my children left... I would be mortified. Yeah, I'd right. Be blaming myself. Of course. And I think that's that's the thing. John McDonald, how dare he? I know. Who, you know, I can't tell you what I would say on a national radio, but thankfully, you know, people like Corbyn and McDonald. I mean, we've got the worst Tory government of all time, mm. and I'm a Tory. Yeah. They are pathetic, and yet they are miles ahead of Corbyn. That's incredible, isn't it? And. The problem for people like Corbyn and McDonald is they're not uh, very pleasant individuals, I'm afraid, and, they, and it comes out every now and again, the mask slips and you find out what they really think. They are dreadful, dreadful people. And I also have to tell you, you know, one of your co-presenters, James Whale, mm. listened to him yesterday. Mike, you and him should literally get in a little bit of a boxing ring together <laughs> because he was not speaking very nicely about you. Well, do you know he I likes to try and he likes to try and noise me up because he's trying to up his uh, his ratings. That's what he does, you know, because yeah, he's not well, doing maybe, too well at the moment. He does, but but there's no need for it. There's no need, and the disrespect. I'm one of those terrible levers and one of those delusional, mad, crazy monster <laughs> lunatic right. people who who run a successful business that make plenty of money every yeah. year, and actually. You know what? I decided to leave the EU. I have a home in Poland, and I see what goes on in the EU a bit better than most. Um, and you know, and I worry about Europe in the sense, you know, there's 2.4 trillion missing in their account. Yeah. This great big black hole. And who's to say they won't go bust in years to come? We're better off on our own, you know, from from many many perspectives. And I have great confidence in this country. But, hey, you know, I was one of those that James Whale said to me, I'm uneducated. James Whale should be a a lever. I don't know what's happened to him. I think he's had some kind of brain transplant or something since I used to know him in the old days. I I don't understand, you know, because apparently we won't be able to buy BMWs in the UK. Well, apparently not. No, it's going to be a nightmare. 
Well, this is their most successful market, or one of them, and one of the most profitable markets. Do you really think the car companies of Germany, you know, the autobahn industries, are not going to sell cars to the UK? Of course they're not. No, you're absolutely right, Vernon. Listen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for calling in, and hopefully uh, you will be enjoying it, this show for many, many more years to come. Uh, let's talk to Tom Copley now, though, uh, who's Labour member for the London Assembly, uh, because he's got some bad words to say about Boris Johnson and the garden bridge that never got built, because we were told it would cost, I don't know, £30 million to build this garden bridge that we didn't need across the Thames, along with all the other bridges we've got. But guess what? It turns out it's now cost £53 million not to build it. Unbelievable. Tom, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's hard to believe that you can spend this much money effectively on nothing, isn't it? Well, indeed. And and actually, Mike, I mean, originally, if you go back, if you cast our minds back to about 2012... Mm. Boris Johnson promised us this bridge would be entirely privately funded. Uh, Joanna Lumley said it would be a tiara for the Thames and a gift for London. <laughs> well, it's turned out to be the opposite of a gift. The costs are spiralled, £53 million in total. The taxpayers expected to pick up £43 million uh, pounds of that. Mm. And a lot of this is because, I think, uh, um, partly gr- gross incompetence, but also this kind of push by the trust to try and to try and get the project to a point where it can never be cancelled. So, despite the fact that there were mounting uh, risks to the project, they hadn't even secured the land to build it on. In February 2016, they signed an engineering contract, which has mm. now cost the taxpayer £21 million. Pounds. How does that so work, if... though, Tom? Because most of us who live in the real world, right, if you cancel a job or you get somebody to see, to sort of, you know, stunt up what it might look like, we never end up paying the full amount if it doesn't happen. Well, I, th- I do think it's quite extraordinary, and I think it does call into question what what uh, what sort of contracts uh, were they signing. But this contract should never have been signed. And there is a big question for Transport for London as well, because you know they did have oversight of this uh, project. They could have stopped the trust uh, from signing that engineering contract. So what we'll be doing at the London Assembly is we'll be uh, we're continuing our investigation and we'll be putting questions to Transport for London about why they didn't intervene when yeah. it was very clear that this project was flailing, mm. that there are huge risks to it, that they didn't act to protect the taxpayer. No, indeed. And so does this end up coming back to your door, Tom? Does this mean it's difficult for you to spend money because of the fact that you've got this gaping debt hanging around? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. It, it, this, it, it's not that it puts uh, uh, future projects uh, uh, or spending at risk. Mm. I just think it's the fact that we should never have got to this situation in the first place. Yes. And there's, uh, there, there's a sort of the, the people that got us here, people like Boris Johnson, who moved the goalpost to expose the taxpayer to more risk. David Cameron, even he yeah. overruled the advice of senior civil servants uh, to, to extend the underwriting for the Garden Bridge Trust. Right. George Osborne, he was even more oh, keen on God. it than Boris at one point. These are all uh, names indeed, that are making me shudder. I mean, and we'd well, like to think that they... I mean, yes, their legacy has been more damaging than possibly anything ever done in politics. Well, well, absolutely. And and I think that one of the real scandals is that uh, uh, thus far they seem to have sort of got away scot-free mm. to the point where Boris Johnson is still being talked about by some people as a Well, well George Osborne's busy ruining the evening standards. I mean, he hasn't stopped, uh, he hasn't stopped destructing things, I have to say. Well, funnily enough, you never read anything about the various scandals <laughs> to do with the Garden no. Bridge in the Evening Standard. I'm not quite sure why that is. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, George is a little bit embarrassed yes, about quite. his previous association with it. Absolutely right. And as far as the whole kind of um, money go, uh, money being paid is concerned, there must be people making making a pretty penny out of this, people getting rich off the back of the taxpayer here. 
Well, uh, there are some uh, there are some very notable examples. Thomas Heatherwick Studios uh, took two. They were the architects. Took two point seven million. And we have to remember that uh, uh, going back a few years, the the design contract. Uh, the procurement for that was essentially rigged in order to ensure that Thomas Heatherwick Studios got the contract. Uh, and they've taken away 2.7 million. Arup, the engineers, 13 uh, million. But there are some other figures as well. Apparently, the trust spent £161,000 on their website. Now, I've seen the trust website, and I can't believe... I, can't, I don't know how they managed to spend £161,000 on it. Um, it's nothing special. So there, if you go through the figures, there are some really uh, standout, extraordinary numbers that, that I think are absolutely scandalous. It is really, really shocking. But listen, thanks very much for pointing it out to us, Tom. Tom Copley, a Labour member for the London Assembly. How on earth can you actually envisage spending £53 million on a bridge that never got built? Loving is easy. It used to be so hard to see Your loving is easy When everything's perfect Please don't change it I'm going to put the thumbs down on this one as well This is awful Terrible voice Absolutely One of the most annoying voices ever This is Rex Orange County Loving is easy It's just awful isn't it Play it up a bit more God help us Almost glad to be alone Until love the producer apparently claims to have seen this bloke live. Surprised you wanted to play any of his music. Absolutely awful. We've been asking you for your version of the best love song ever, and we've actually got nothing to say. We don't have anybody nominating the best love song ever. Uh, maybe I'll just have to tell you what it is at some point. But it is Valentine's Day, of course, and despite the fact that we've been talking about a great many serious things, uh, it's time to have a little bit of a light relief session. And who better to talk to uh, than the award-winning sex and relationships and content creator, uh, the very uh, one and only Aloni. Aloni, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Afternoon, how are you? I'm very well. This is like Christmas Day for you, right, today? Yes, basically. <laughs> I'm loving I'm loving your Twitter today, as I always enjoy it on most days anyway, but you've put out, who's ready for the Valentine's Day challenge this year, right? And you've said to people, message your crush. I've had a crush on you for some time. I would like to go on a date. Would you like to go on a date with me this Valentine's Day? And some of the responses are fantastic, aren't they? No, they're amazing. <laughs> Lots of people are um, finally admitting their love for their crush and going out on a date. And some people are sadly getting turned down, but it is, it is a bit of a good laugh. It is a very, it's a great laugh. I mean, all the ones I've seen, I've only seen the first sort of t- dozen or so, and they're, they're they're all getting turned down. Or, or <laughs> there's one there's one woman who sent it to her husband, and he said, "No thanks." <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you're um, not even supposed to be involved as well. I've strictly told people if you're in a relationship, you're not involved. Right. But, you know, <laughs> it's very funny, isn't it? I mean, I have to say, in this day and age where people are a little bit too nervous, perhaps of making you know unwanted contact or possibly you know unsolicited you know uh, suggestions, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you are accused of doing something wrong, there's no way out, really, is it? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's why you have to be very careful. Mm and um, direct and make sure you're not doing anything that could be seen as um, inappropriate, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so is there, I mean, what's, where, I mean, a lot of people will be listening to this going, yeah, well, that's all very well for you to say, but how do I know if I'm being inappropriate? I mean, for example, is it all right to just say what you're suggesting? You know, I've, I've had a crush on you for a while. Would you like to go out with me? I mean, that's okay, I guess, but, but um, how far can you go? Um, I think that's far enough. And if you're ever in doubt, perhaps check with a friend. Uh, yeah. Check with a friend. Someone you just think might be a bit sensible. Someone who gives great advice and just say, hey, what do you think about this? I'd right. like to 
send this message to someone and, you know, get feedback from them. And if they give you the all clear, go through with it. Go through with it. Right. And do you think there's going to be a lot of people out tonight then? Because, I mean, for me, I always think of Valentine's Day as a bit of an amateur, an amateur night. I'm actually going out for lunch with somebody who I'm not uh, in a relationship with and don't wish to be, but she's a friend of mine <laughs> and a contact, and she's married. And, and we yeah. said this is the best offer we've had for Valentine's Day, so we're going out for lunch together, which is fine. It's not going to go anywhere, and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, sometimes Valentine's Day can be absolutely platonic. There doesn't have to be something that can always be suggestive. I think the day is all about just spreading love, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So it could be you could spend it with a friend, it could be a crush, it could be someone you're in a relationship with. I think it's all about just celebrating love and just realizing that it's just a nice. It's just a nice feeling sometimes just to be around people who I guess have mutual feelings towards you. So, it is, it yeah. is. And a lot of people are looking for a relationship, aren't they? But a lot of people are not as well. I mean, I see the dating sort of business has changed a lot over the years and now there's a lot exactly. more, there's quite a lot of casual sex going on out there, it seems to me. Definitely, there is a lot of casual sex and I think women are becoming a bit more open in their wants and they're not shying away from just saying, I want a relationship when it isn't always the case. Sometimes people are, women are just interested in casual sex and I think that's where it's becoming more interesting. Yeah, do you think some men are having a problem with that as well? Pardon? Do you think some men are having a bit of a problem with that? Um, They see it as a bit of competition, I think, sometimes, uh, because they're not used to it. They're used to, um, I guess, thinking that women are just particularly after relationships. But that's not the case anymore. Women, too, are just okay with, you know, enjoying casual sex and it not being anything more. Well, some of the stories, like I say, that, that that I enjoy reading on your on your Twitter account, quite hair-raising in some ways, I must say, but they're very funny, an awful lot of them. I think people have been a lot more honest about it now than they used to be as well. They are, and I think that's what makes it more interesting, that people find it relatable as well. So even if they're not sharing their experiences, they know that there's someone at home who's reading and can relate as yeah. well. So I think it makes everyone know that they're not the only ones who are sure. going through something. No, right. And you've got a podcast out there. I'd, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to to play some of it, but most of it's probably unplayable on the radio station that I'm on here <laughs> during the day. Yeah, but tell people where they can get it. Yeah, so it's called Laid Bear Podcast, and you can get it on Apple, SoundCloud. I also have a book that's coming out called The Big O. You okay. can go to unbound.com and simply make a pledge for it and pre-order it. So right. The Big O. And I've got to ask you what you're doing for Valentine's Day, Aloni. Sadly, I'm not doing anything. What? I'm not doing, this is the first Valentine's Day where I will not be doing anything. So I'm trying to take some of my energy and make sure that other people are going to find love. So I guess I'll be Cupid for today. Oh, it's, you're going to just be Cupid? Is that because yeah. you don't want to find it or you're just not looking or what? Um, I'm just not looking this time. This time, this year, I'm just not looking. But right. fingers crossed for next year. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, a year's a long time in politics, as they say, so we'll see how you get yeah. along. Aloni, thank you very much indeed, and happy Valentine's Day uh, to you. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.